Hello and welcome to the Professional Insight Podcast Season 6. Um, you never really know what the episode is. It doesn't really matter, really. The last invoice um, didn't have the episodes on it either, so I can't even tell you. <laughs> We've hit in the episode number, so I don't know. It's like 30, I my think. Name, my name's Brandon Curry. I'm Jeff Collins. Josh Bond. Oh, and Trevor Lindy. It's musical and chairs on we, the screen. Yeah, it was musical chairs there for a second. For anyone that's downloaded the audio, uh, we're yeah, that's why there was a bit of a delay because of the musical chairs, the tiles. Um, uh, just wanted to rec- uh, recognize our guest today, the CEO of Merit Asset Management, Roberto Catacac. How are you, sir? Thank you very much for coming on the show. You are a very busy individual. Thank we started you, uh, this process. Yeah, we, we started this process about a couple months ago uh, with a fellow colleague of, of both of ours, um, Chris, uh, Chris Bone. And uh, we're so glad to have uh, you and, and the, the company that you're obviously, just full disclosure for anyone that's listening or watching, uh, our firm uses Merit. And so therefore, um, that, that was one of the, just the insights that uh, Roberto and his team have. We are, are one of the tools that we use to decide on, you know, where to put people's money, you know, where do we find the economy going? It, a lot of amazing insight, but I'd just like to do a, a formal, um, uh, a formal introduction. So Roberto assumed the role of CEO of Merit Asset Management in June of 2023. Woo-hoo. Congratulations on first first quarter, first quarter in the books. First um, before. Before your appointment, um, you were uh, the firm's institutional strategist and head of sales and marketing from 2017 to 2023. Uh, But before joining Merit, uh, you took on various roles in renowned financial organizations such as Manulife, Equisoft, and CI Investments. To name a few, you have a finance degree from the John Molson School of Business at Concordia University, and you are also a financial analyst charter holder. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. Thank you all. And thank you for getting my last name pretty well there. <laughs> Ooh, I had a Did I nail it? Did I nail it? Like, I mean, like, you I practiced it. Like, did you, you practice it. that all day? Or what? <laughs> well, I did, of course. <laughs> so John Molson, did you have to like drink beer as you were doing your studies? You or? know, that that is part of the prerequisites. Yeah, That's okay. the last course, actually, before you get the, the hat and you go on stage, there there is a, an exam on that. <laughs> on being able to pub crawl, I guess. It was a long time ago, so maybe things have changed. Could you still pub crawl today then, Roberto? Oh, God, no. I have to, I have no. two kids, and the only thing I crawl is the, uh, when I hurt myself walking on Lego. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the ground, I'm crawling. That's that's how I crawl these days. So. Nice. Lego Crazy. can mess you up. We've yeah. all been there. Yeah. yeah. Um. So there. before we get into the economics and the city and I mean, the country and where you see the global landscape. Can you take our listeners and our viewers through your career path? A lot of people tune in wanting to know, I mean, and then maybe at the end, cause you are a CFA, I'm a CFP. Um, as a CFA, let's, can you just tell people the difference and where would they see typically a CFA and a CFP and, Obviously, you and I work, and your firm, we work well together. But sure. coming from a CFA, let's let's uh, go about uh, go about that road. So, so acronym being certified financial advisor versus certified financial planner, uh, chartered financial analyst. Okay, 
versus a certified financial planner. Perfect. Ooh, the CFA sounds really good. Yeah, yeah. Get that, Gary. You gotta get that. You gotta go get that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Add those legs. <laughs> Um, listen, my, my career path is a little bit, I guess, different from the maybe typical executive path. Uh, I actually started in the industry back in 1998. I was, uh, I was a student at John Molson, um, going to school full-time during the, uh, actually going to school full-time at night, uh, and working for an advisor as, as an associate during the day. Um, so back, back in those days, we had to actually fax in, uh, trade tickets. There was not a lot of automation there. So that, that kind of dates me. Uh, but I did that uh, all through university. Um, after university, I actually, uh, and that's when I actually started the, the first level of the CFA. Uh, after I finished university, I actually, I come from a, come a long line, I guess, of entrepreneurs. So I think, uh, you know, I decided to give, throw my hat in the ring in terms of starting businesses. So I actually took a little break from finance for, for a couple of years, about two or three years. I launched a couple of businesses uh, in Montreal. Um, some worked very well, some did not work very well. Um, but in that kind of two to three year period, you kind of realize that uh, you kind of miss the, you know, the, the, the finance side. So uh, I then got back into the finance side, uh, finished up my CFA charter, uh, then worked for a company that does financial software and analytics. That would be the Equisoft that you mentioned earlier. Um, did that for a couple of years uh, through, I guess, the financial crisis a couple of years. Uh, and then realized I wanted to really get back into asset management. And that, that's when I actually took a role with CI uh, initially as a, as a, um, a business uh, development associate, uh, working myself into vice president of sales uh, for about six or seven years before I was asked actually to join Merit as the institutional strategist. And obviously, as you mentioned, uh, I guess uh, six, seven years later, I, I just took over as CEO, uh, uh, one quarter in the books, as you just said. So that, that's my career path. So. Easy time to jump in there, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, yeah. it's interesting. When I, when I started my career, it was actually in the late 90s. So I started in 98, and uh, we went right into I, – I, I learned early the tech crisis, the tech bubble. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've seen a number of cycles, a number of trauma for investors, and I think that's kind of why I, my personality kind of gravitated towards fixed income and, and kind of the alternative space just because, uh, you know, having seen – you know, and dealing with clients as you do, Brandon, uh, the emotions and and the, the roller coaster it is to be uh, investing in in very volatile markets, as similar to what we're seeing today. Um, I just felt, um, you know, there's got to be a, a different way to do things, and I think that's also why I gravitate towards alternative fixed income rather than just kind of traditional fixed income. So, yeah. So, yeah, what would, what would um, what the difference be there? Sorry, uh, sure. Great yeah. question. Uh, alternative versus traditional fixed income. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, basically, uh, and I, I should answer your question early between CFA and CFP. So just remind me to do that after. But um, sure. in traditional uh, in traditional investing, there are certain rules um, that traditional money managers kind of have to follow. They don't have certain tools that alternative managers uh, have in their toolbox uh, to to enhance returns or to lower volatility. Um, so there's rules around uh, leveraging. Um, you know, most of the of the cases you hear on alternative fixed uh, alternative investments is oftentimes uh, horror stories about alternative managers uh, leveraging up, uh, taking too much risk at the wrong time, uh, and effectively almost uh, you know becoming a, a headline and a disaster within the industry. Um, so there's some leverage that can be used. We're very 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 uh, conservative in terms of users of leverage. So that's not re really we really focus on. Um, but in terms of the other 
tools that we have as alternative managers, um, there's risks in, in my space, which is fixed income. The two biggest risks in fixed income are actually um, what we call interest rate risk. So the volatility of rates that we've seen uh, that's typically driven by central banks creates volatility in bond prices. Basically, the simple thing to remember is uh, yield or rates go up, uh, bond prices usually go down. Uh, that's something that we we want to have tools at our at our disposal be able to hedge that volatility. It's almost like you know being able to buy insurance, similar to how you buy life insurance for your own uh, port, uh, your own your family. Uh, we can actually buy almost portfolio insurance for our portfolios. Those tools cannot be used by traditional um, mutual funds. Uh, and also, as I said earlier, going through multiple cycles of uh, and, and crises and financial crises or tech bubbles, we actually have tools that uh, traditional managers don't have to protect us from recession risks. So we're, we're big users of these kind of tools. And the whole goal behind that is really um, have the insurance and protection in place at key moments of a cycle. Uh, to protect from from the uh, to protect the downside, uh, at the end of the day, we're just trying to lose less money than everybody else at the right times. And obviously, the guests here being involved in real estate understand these cycles. Also in real estate, if you can protect yourself uh, from corrections in in real estate prices, similar to we protect ourselves uh, in financial markets. If you're in a position and you have the dry powder because you've lost less money than everybody else, you can actually take advantage of those deals. Uh, and take uh, some pretty good uh, exposure to get some pretty good returns at the right time. Um, so it's really the tools that we have in our toolbox uh, that traditional managers don't have. And the other thing that we also uh, enjoy about being fixed in, uh, alternative fixed income managers is um, traditional funds are all categorized within the industry. So that means they to serve a certain category, they have to have constraints. Uh, because we're in a category that really has no constraints, we can actually exercise full flexibility across our mandate. So that's kind of a, uh, the bullet points, I guess, in traditional versus alternative managers. Oh, excellent. Makes sense. If you, uh, while, we, while we got you, if you wanted to talk about the difference between a CFA, a chartered financial analyst, and a CFP, certified financial planner, um, by all means, please. Yeah, so, so um, certified financial planner is really... Uh, that high-level designation that um, your advisors have to actually uh, qualify for, and that really encompasses um, uh, the global aspects of managing an individual's client's portfolio, uh, which um, would include, I guess, uh, the holistic approach, and that's not just money, but I guess it would be also involving taxation, insurance, et cetera. Um, a chartered financial analyst is more... Um, it's 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 quite a rigorous degree. There's a there's a or certification. There's three levels. Uh, the pass rate is very very low. Uh, not to toot my own horn, but I think the pass rate is only like 15 or I think it's 15 percent um, across wow. the three levels. Wow. Um, and that 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 um, certification actually allows you to kind of focus more into um, the the deep into the weeds in terms of all aspects of uh, financial management. So it's not just asset management, there's aspects of accounting, uh, there's corporate finance, there's obviously uh, understanding portfolio management, understanding um, basically how to analyze stocks, uh, bonds, um, building global portfolios, understanding uh, alternative investments. Um, so it's quite a rigorous, uh, it's quite a rigorous degree and, and really dives into more the, uh, the nitty gritty in terms of actually building the underlying components within portfolios, but also uh, all aspects of finance in general, because finance is, is a very, very broad, uh, broad word, I guess. So, 
Now, does that does and, and I don't I, I'm not, I'm not the financial guy by any stretch of the imagination. So does that kind of tie into like a, like a discretionary status or or something along those lines? No, because discretionary like a discretionary portfolio management title is actually something separate. Um, okay. So so that's uh, by default. Be, anyone who actually has done the CFA charter, typically you automatically um, qualify as a as a certification for to be a discretionary portfolio manager. Okay. But every portfolio manager does not get to qualify for a charter financial aid because the, the charter financial is, is like portfolio management designation is kind of here and the yep. CFA charter is kind of like gotcha, gotcha. This, yeah. The bigger I'm on the radio, I'm doing this big motion with my yeah, hands. Yeah. <laughs> this is small, small circle on you know, portfolio versus big circle on CFA. So I got to be conscious of that. So just remind the, the listeners there. The larger umbrella, yeah, yeah, the larger, CFA. yeah, obviously. Larger shape, yeah. And the other thing that I don't like, uh, the I mean, uh, you're right. It is it is across all three levels. The the CFA. I mean, the CFP pass rate's fifty five percent or something ridiculous. Um, goes lower as you ironically as you if you have to take it again. The CFA has three different levels: level one, two, and yeah. three. I don't know what that pass rate is, but it is also ex because most people don't get through it. Um, and then on top of that, you go and write your your third and final exam, and you're marked on a bloody bell curve, which is <laughs> right. even the worst. So yeah. it's not yeah. even whether or not you yeah. know the knowledge. They it's then well you worldwide, do yeah. yeah, which is just I I fundamentally am against yeah. bell curves. I just don't agree with them. If you know the knowledge, you should get it. Right. So, um, so for the CFA level one exam, just to kind of give you an idea of what that encompasses, I, I kind of tell people it's like writing your entire bachelor's degree. So basically it's it's two, three hour tests where you're responsible for the entire knowledge base of your entire bachelor's degree. And they could test you on anything at any given point. So that's kind of how you in terms of the, the, the breadth of knowledge uh, that's required. And you also have to be pretty quick to, to recall information. So that's kind of gives you an idea of the how rigorous that, that first level can be. Nice. Roberto, where whereabouts are you located? Are you in Ontario? So Merritt is actually based in Toronto. Okay. Um, but I'm actually born and raised in Montreal. And okay. uh, yeah, so I, I actually fly into Toronto every every week. So I was, I, was, I just got back last night at midnight. So I was there, I'm probably there two, three days a week. Uh, and then the other days, I'm kind of flying all over. So thank you. The most important question to me, Roberto, are you a renter or you own a home? I own a home. And in fact, I just shopped mortgage rates. Oh, I just before this call, I was just talking to a mortgage <laughs> specialist trying to figure out what I'm going to do next month. So uh, there's a guy right right down below you that can tell you what to do here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What yeah. did you find out here? Because th this is the million dollar uh, am, question going I, on right now. Is to be economy? honest, I'm leaning variable. Yeah. Um, I'm leaning variable, I think, and we'll probably talk more about this, but, uh, uh, you know, I just, you know, it, if you can get anywhere close to where the three-year fixed is on your variable, I think that's a good call. Um, and that's kind of, I don't, I don't really like the one year. I think it's just, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, I still like the differentials between the, the ones and twos. I think, uh, if I locked in at three, I'm pretty sure, if the differential is only a quarter point, I think for 36 payments, I'm going to win out if I, uh, if I take the variable. variable. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're predicting three years from now. I think the central banks three years from now, I think we're probably 250 basis points lower. 
Yeah. What do you think one year from now? I'd love to hear what the CFAs, the yeah. CFPs yeah. and the everybody, Honestly, all the financial. I think, I think one I think one year from now, easily the bank account would be hundred basis points lower. So the biggest question, when are they dropping? <laughs> well let's yeah, let's put some context. Yeah, right yeah, now, yeah Brandon, you want to get into this now this or do you want to yeah, let's yeah, you, you go right into it. I just, this is what so affects my 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 <laughs> income. So I need first of all, what what is the three year right now? Three year fixed. What's the three year fixed? Five five? I got a three year fixed at six fifteen. Six fifteen. Trevor can do it for six forty five. Yeah, I got I got a two year quote at six ninety one and one year at seven twenty or something like that. Yeah. So just for our <coughs> listeners and our viewers, today is October 13th, 2023. We are 12 days away from the Bank of Canada announcement happening on Wednesday, October the 25th. Um, just so when we're, because people download these episodes and they watch them at different times. So yeah. just because I don't want Roberto to say something that, sure, or, or give advice on something, right? Because yeah, these yeah, things, in context. economic data that we actually have, um, but uh, back to, to, to Jeff's questions, I mean, so the differential you're getting back on a one, two, three year fix between a two and a three is about 25 basis points is what you said? Between the two and the three, it's actually close to 65, 65 basis points. Between 65 basis points? Yeah. yeah. And what are you getting your variable at right now? What are they quoting your variable at right now? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to get them down to... Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> they offered me six... Point five. Um, okay. I got another one coming in at six point three six. So I'm trying to see which. Ask one. Trevor the tricks to get it down. He must have. Trevor, some give insight. me the tricks. Yeah. yeah what's the tricks here, Trevor? How do you get it down? Honestly, oh, really the bloody guy never talks half the time. <laughs> this is racist. This is his moment. We're, we're setting it up for you. The CEO of Merit right now asking you. Let's yeah, go. Come yeah. on, Trev. It's like professional insight inside Trev. Right. The problem is though. Banks won't compete against monoline lenders. Mm. Monoline lenders are going to be your cheapest pricing, right? Most monoline lenders um, right now, variable loan to value, less than 65% purchase transfer, no refi, uh, prime minus 90. So you'd be looking and at- what's a monoline? Okay. So that's a prime 720? Yeah. Okay. So 630. Yeah. Yeah, but I even like my mortgages with Scotia. So when mm -hmm. I was up for renewal a few years ago, I went to Scotia and I said, "Listen, this is what I can get from you know MCAP, First National, yeah. Merricks." Listed out the model line letters. They're like, "Nope, won't compete. Won't compete against them. We'll compete against mm -hmm. brick and mortar, TD, mm -hmm. BMO, RBC. They'll consider mm -hmm. them. They won't even compete against HSBC." Hmm. It's unfortunate. See, this is the hard hitting stuff we bring you at Professional Insight, Roberto. <laughs> inside information and monoline being one job that they don't have bricks and mortar one line of business all gotcha. they do is specialize in mortgages mortgages got you mm -hmm. yeah so 6.3 the okay. lowest it's so gonna on, get right now on, unless you've got somebody that'll buy it down then mm. you got an offer of 6.3 do you not i have i have 6.36 so it's not far off no so you tell them buy it down or go somewhere else that's what you tell them you got to negotiate roberto Walk away. So let's let's get back to the question at hand. Well, that, that was great, and that's even great for a Habs fan. I mean, to get that in depth into <laughs> into his knowledge on his on a sorry about the other night. Sorry about the other night, Chuck. So sorry. Well, right now they're that one game out of first game, place, though. though. He's feeling good still. No, one game yeah. out of first. <laughs> we a got chance. a chance. There's always a chance. Uh, <laughs> um, 
so back to back to the original question which was uh okay let's break this down um some big things have happened in the past week uh the first thing is we do have a bank of canada announcement happening on wednesday october the 25th 2023 let's what are your feelings where's the 50 50 split the, if you're a betting man what do you think is going to happen with the the, the bank of canada uh overnight lending rate yeah I, I think it's a hold i think it's a pause um i think based on seen, why yeah, what are I your mean, analysts saying at merit well when you look at just what's going on and what would prompt central banks to increase rates um the the big theme that we've seen since they actually started rehiking and then pausing is uh, is the canadian economy is starting to show signs of weakness i mean we went through one quarter of negative gdp uh we had the unemployment rate in canada go up uh you know from five to five and a half percent and by the way that's not because um participation rate increased in canada it's just basically there was not enough jobs created given how immigration is going in canada and also given population growth in canada we basically bring in about 80 you know, 80,000 people a month, you actually need 50,000 jobs created every single month for that unemployment rate to stay stable. Um, so the Bank of Canada has basically said, you know what, we're, we're close to destination. We've, uh, we've seen a lot of the, I guess, excess demand that they were looking for uh, come off. That was a threat earlier in the year because they had to re-hike. That's coming kind of cooling down here. Um, we have the labor market, pockets of the labor market starting to soften, which is also uh, positive for what they're trying to do. They don't want an overheating labor market. Um, and also at the end of the day, you have to understand our economy is much more sensitive to interest rates than other economies like the US. Uh, Canada is an open economy, meaning we rely, well, basically the Canadian economy is fueled by, you know, 15% of our, 15 to 60% of our economy relies on the real estate um, industry. And the other, a large part of it is, is trade. Uh, we export a lot of commodities and obviously as you know um you know there's no massive infrastructure or global growth going on there's not a lot of demand for commodities um so we're we're much more sensitive and obviously the dynamic of the canadian consumer like if you look at the canadian consumer uh, debt relative to income it's worse than the americans were during the financial crisis before they had their 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 issues and by the way rates are higher like you have to go back to 2002 to uh, to see where uh, the last level last time we were this high in rates and obviously as we all know and as your guests uh, or your your hosts know here um, we don't have 30-year um, mortgages in Canada we run five-year fixed so there's this wall of maturities of five-year fixed mortgages that are it's like an iceberg hitting the economy here it's just slow moving and it's just coming closer and closer um, so at the end of the day you know they they know they're already at restrictive levels they don't need to take rates higher from here. But what they do need to do, though, is maybe keep them longer at these levels, a bit higher, a bit longer than markets are typically used to. So um, just, again, to see more weakness in the consumer to make sure that, that that inflation complex is still moving in the right trend. And obviously, there's been some volatility in oil prices. Um, that could food pricing, that could, they're starting to... Yeah, food pricing, oil. Yeah, I mean, there's just there's still some volatility there, which is why central banks don't necessarily want to signal that they're they're officially paused what they're going to say is like we will monitor data uh and give themselves optionality uh because if they actually signal that this is the last pause then, then markets will probably rally that's going to work against them so anyways that's all this being said we think that the, the tightness of levels that we've seen here are sufficient enough just 
allowing time to slow the consumer and you're already starting to see that uh, work its way through the uh, through the economy especially in Canada so the the Canadian the Canadian economy Canadian central banks similar to how you know they started raising rates ahead of the US they could more realistically be ahead in terms of actually cutting rates at some point or you know pausing and then cutting rates into uh, maybe uh, middle of next year well, that's what you figure q2 next year your best guess or yeah i mean look if we if we bank another negative quarter of gdp for q4 that's two hmm. negative quarters of gdp i mean technical recession that's, right that's a, that's a technical recession at a time where you know like the the more weird they it's just odd because certain it's things are really so moving crazy. Right? you know the only like think about what they've done we we built our economy found an equilibrium the last decade and a half on zero rates. All of a sudden, central banks raise rates 500 basis points, and yeah. you're not going to break something. Yeah, and don't give it time. You know. Uh, See, and I, I look. So, I look at it differently. I, like I look at it from, from build a realtor standpoint, because I follow the market yeah. and all that. But during, I'd say about a year ago, and everybody probably could speak to the same thing. You could not find a tradesperson to do any work whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. You had to beg, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> beg, and they were so overrun with business that they picked and choose when they wanted to do it. Right yeah. now, every day I open up my email for my building company, yeah. it's a new tradesperson looking mm -hmm. to introduce looking himself, for looking yeah. for business and asking for business. And I'm, I'm in tune with trades, not just from building, but for real estate clients yeah. and stuff like yeah. that doing work. And they're all slow right now. Yeah. Like my flooring guy, who's as good as it gets, yeah, has finally said, "You got anything? Let me know." Yeah, yeah. let me know. And so that, to me, and you know, he is more good. at a lower level. He's excellent, but at the lower level down here, that yeah. trickles through the economy about what's happening. Because, because think about pools, right? Like I'm yeah. waiting for the pool thing to switch because I want to put a pool in next year. Yeah, and yeah. pools are at the peak right now, and they're yeah. probably still getting yeah. installed because of purchases a year ago. Yeah, exactly. But all the other trades, they are looking for work right now. Yeah. Because they've hired many people, yeah. but now they don't have enough work to keep it. So to me, sliding out of the summer, going towards Christmas time, which will be a good indicator, how much money is spent at Christmas this year, right? Like it's yeah. it's going to be interesting. You know, I bet you, sorry, Jeff, on the pool yeah. thing, I bet you not next summer, the following summer is when you're going to, you're going to get your best price if you're waiting. Yeah. Well, right? I, I have to shit or get out the pot right now. I think I'm going to pull the trigger and do the pool myself and my guys. Because I can buy the kit at a reduced cost. Because I think most people now, like, I assume all families are the same thing. We used to go to a restaurant once a week, whatever like that. Now we're like, you know what, let's just buy and cook at home right now to mm -hmm. save some money, right? So it's now, like, I'm buying, I'm buying, it sounds bad because you should support local, but I bought a, a new weight set for my son and I'm looking mm -hmm. for free weights. Have you seen how much free weights cost? It's insane. Yeah. Was it two bucks a pound now? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like $3 a pound. Is it so really? I found, it used to be a buck a pound before the the, the pandemic. But yeah, exactly. But <laughs> I found 300 pounds of weight in an Olympic bar, all for 350 bucks. Brand new. But I got to drive to Mississauga and back to pick it up. Yeah. So to save the 300 bucks, I'm like, whatever, I'll go for a two-hour drive, pick it up, right? But that's yeah. the way, you know, so, some families are they're, they're looking for ways to save a buck and all that, right? And that's what's yeah. happening. You don't get a pool oh. soon, Jill's going to slap you. I know. <laughs> so back back to the economy um so just 
actually, just to further, uh, rookie actually just texted me saying he he has some friends and himself that you know help out in the pool industry, and it's down thirty three percent. So there you go, Collins. It's starting to trickle their way through. Shoot me a name. Rookie. Um. So in <laughs> in Q two in Q two in the Canadian economy, we had negative GDP growth. I believe it was a minus point two percent contraction. Yeah. yeah. Um. How are we trending for Q three? I mean, look, uh, the the the. the early data that we've seen is consumer spending is reaching their limits um you know just as like we we overspent on um goods back in the pandemic we're starting to see a lot of let's say weakness on the like stronger weakness on the services side which is uh which is so it seems like the consumer is now over consumed uh services um now because we're also facing even higher rates than we did back in q2 because they started rehiking rates uh, in our view, that's just going to permeate further. So we're looking at probably, you know, you know, flattish, uh, flattish growth probably for 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 Q Q4. Uh, but again, as you start to see more and more headlines coming in, that uh, you know, you're starting to start to see some dislocation from the employment side. Maybe coming in flat to even a little bit a little bit negative for for Q4 would not be surprising to us. We had uh, Dr. Dr. Thorne on, Dr. Jim Thorne, um, and he's going to be coming on again on our show the, the day after the Bank of Canada announcement. Um, and it's funny, this is one of the reasons why I really rely on your team. Oh, sorry about that. Rely on your team and also rely on the the insights of, of, of professionals and ourselves because you know, it can kind of get convoluted. So I'll give an, I'll give an example, the stats can report for September job growth in Canada. You know, they're like, Oh, analysts expected 20,000 and it ended up being 63,000. Um, and then Jim Thornton goes, uh, you're not reporting on the second page of the stats can report, which basically said that was all government jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Education or, yeah. Yeah, or self-employed jobs, yeah. not the private yeah. sector's not hiring. No, no. To that. And, and the same thing, by the way, in the U.S., there was like a there was a big U.S. print uh, last week mm -hmm. of three hundred and twenty thousand jobs. Right now on the number, the number sounds really big because typically you're getting uh, job growth like basically in the U.S. As I said, Canada, you need 50,000 jobs per month for jobs to grow uh, for the unemployment rate to stay stable in the U.S. You need like one hundred hundred twenty five thousand jobs. OK. The U.S. puts out a print the other week of 326,000 jobs, and the market celebrates. Say, hey, look, look, the unemployment rate's so low. We're creating so many jobs. But if you actually look at the job, look at the quality of the jobs. It was all part-time work. Yeah. And so when you look at that, and you look at some other metrics, because like, you know, when you're trying to get an idea of the health of the labor market, it's not necessarily just the unemployment rate, because the unemployment rate is the last thing to move. So if you're waiting, you know, the unemployment rate is moving up when you're already well into the recession. It's the laggiest. It's the latest of all the indicators. So you actually have to look at um, earlier things like initial unemployment claims. You also have to start looking at some of the things that we look at in terms of trying to get uh, an idea of the, uh, the health of the, uh, the actual labor market is, um, is the quality of the work that's being done. So basically, as I said earlier, you had... Um, a, a job creation in the U.S. of 320,000 jobs, but most of it was part-time. So basically what's, what's actually end up happening right now is a lot of full-time workers are losing their jobs 
and they're being replaced with part-time jobs. However, though, when you actually add up the hours worked, let's say you fire one person and you replace them with two part-time people. Instead of actually replacing with them with two part-time people working 40 hours a week, they're only working 35 hours a week. So when you look at a number like a 300,000 job creation, it sounds like, wow, the, the, the job market is really tight, it's expanding. But you actually look at the hours worked in the entire economy, it's actually going lower. So that's, that's important because when you actually understand um, the effect on the economy, it's not about the number of jobs. It's, the, it's about the amount of hours worked in the economy times wages. That's what gives you what we call gross domestic income. That's the amount yep. of income generated by the entire economy yeah, I, can be spent in the economy. Yeah. So you could have 300,000 jobs being created, but if it's all part-time work and they're only in total working less than full-time hours, the income generated by the economy is actually going lower. So now, you, now how do we reconcile that with grappling uh, with like a societal shift to, to, like, to more of a part-time, um, you know, at least one of the, one of the working incomes is more part-time or sometimes two of them now. Right. Ever yeah, since you have to work two part time jobs because guess what? Your mortgage rates is going to be double what it was in Canada, yeah. right? Like you're, like I, I was speaking with someone the other day. Uh, obviously, the younger, the the younger uh, early bought uh, young buyers, the new how they they spent, they spent they they bought at the top yeah. and they took out variable mortgages, barely qualified. They had to get parents help them out with the qualification. Yep. And now they're, they're they're about to renew, and they're not only number one they take variable, their payments are going up 40 percent. They were never even be able to afford that before if, if they're if they didn't get a helping hand. But now they actually have to pay the mortgages themselves. Yeah. Uh, and probably what you've seen, uh, Brandon, is maybe you had some uh, some of your clients have maybe come to you and say, "Hey, Brandon, I need two hundred thousand dollars because I have to help out my kid with their first house." Yeah, you know. Yeah. But now that that generation actually is now facing higher rates, and guess what? Now they got to work two jobs. You know, they could afford it on a full-time job that that mortgage, but now with rates the way they are, they're they're working two jobs, right? And that's well, and just to get on firing anybody. So imagine if you know you're getting this kind of pressure on the consumer before the labor market has actually turned in Canada. So imagine if you actually get people having income destruction because they're actually losing their jobs because we're going through a global slowdown, and you're facing these high mortgages. Um, Mariana's trench. Yeah. Disaster. Disaster. So, so uh, for everyone that's tuning in just right now, uh, watching us live or has downloaded, uh, you know, halfway through, um, this is the CEO of Merit Asset Management, Robert Kadigbach. Um, Thank you very much again for coming on. But like you're you're hitting, so it's it's a bit coincidental. About, I would say six weeks ago, Trevor, I think I went to a lunch and learn. It was hosted by CI, which is the affiliate that. You, you were not there, Rob, Roberto, but a couple of your team members were doing a presentation mm -hmm. and it was a very, it was a massive um, blow off. And I want you to kind of take this because you're kind of touching on the job market and you're touching on a bunch of different things, which is amazing because GDI, we've been, you know, gross yeah. domestic income has been negative for, for a while. Um, and that is a, the definition of unemployed, employed and not looking and how you can <laughs> opt in and out of each category. Yeah, I'd like you to touch on that. Yeah. And then the second piece is, which just irritated all four of us, specifically Trevor, when they announced the jobs of 63,000 new jobs, yeah. but, but that 
still 63,000 new jobs. Well, one person can have three part-time jobs yeah. and they're counting them as mutually exclusive, yeah. which, so go, please go with that. Uh, yeah, it, it was and your team. It was your team that told me this. We're blown yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. When you look at non-farm payrolls, as I said earlier, like yes, um, thank you. This is a um, it's a it's a business survey. So basically, they say, okay, did you did you add a job? But they don't go into was it full time, was it part time, etc. So there's literally double counting going in there. But this is part of a bigger picture, where central banks have such a difficult. Um, they're in such a difficult position because the entire labor market data is very, very cloudy. Even, you know, the job openings that you hear, um, basically there's a statistic called the job openings labor turnover. It's basically you take a ratio of, you know, how many job postings there are relative to, um, you know, people seeking employment. Um, and there's something like, you know, um, call it, you know, nine, nine million job openings. Um and that's still, you know, a number of millions away from where it was before COVID. However, though, you know, when you have that kind of number of job openings, typically you would say, wow, that, okay, there's so many companies looking for, for to fill positions. But that, that number is actually misleading because what we've noticed uh, coming out of COVID is there's companies that are posting jobs that they never intend to fill. So basically you have, a, 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 they have these, what they call um, ghost postings. So there's been a number of uh, companies that are they're they're constantly posting jobs because they're they're just building a database in case they lose workers. Uh, in terms of the uh, the tech companies or the the small kind of growing companies, typically what they also have been doing is they've been using job opening bulletin boards to kind of use it as marketing to show that they're kind of growing in growth mode, but they never intend to fill these jobs. Um, so that number is very very cloudy. Uh, and then on top of that, the when you look at, as I said earlier, the the actual statistics, the the business survey statistics for labor, it, it's it's very very cloudy in terms of the quality of the you know qu the quality of the jobs that are being produced is actually probably deteriorating, um, and that's also signaled by the way we have a tracking uh, we have a, a model that tracks uh, temporary jobs, and typically when you look at the temporary jobs, they're always uh, last in to be hired, but they're also the first out to be fired in the slowdown in recession. And when you look at that chart, basically temporary jobs, they, these, these, this cohort of the working population, they're losing jobs at a rate that would typically signal recession. So when you add up all of these things in terms of, you know, average hours worked per week, the number of hours worked in the aggregate economy uh, kind of flatlining, um, you look at overtime hours actually going back to pre-COVID levels, you look at the number of temporary uh, workers that are losing their jobs at a fast rate that signal typically recession, that does not speak to a market of a really, really strong uh, labor dynamic. And, and that's the, the trouble that central banks have is they have a whole bunch of data that's showing, well, okay, the, the, the economy is actually susceptible here, but then you'll get this weird wonky data which sometimes the numbers are so large that they're almost impossible to believe. Um, but it's just that the data coming post COVID in terms of the adjustments are, are just all over the place. And I think that's also why, you know, bigger picture, we think that, you know, when you have central banks that are almost trying to calibrate or land this plane through all of this turbulence, when their, um, their measurements, their kind of alt oh, I guess it was altimeter or whatever it is, are kind of going haywire, it's really hard to land that plane really softly. 
So, so the, the question here would be, why is the government providing these numbers, the 63,000 job increases? Obviously, it's optics because they want to maintain the rate or, or, you know, they don't want to decrease it. So they're trying to provide these numbers to show that they can't decrease yet. Is that what they're doing? Because clearly it's a fabricated number, more or less. Yeah, I, know, I don't think they're trying to work the numbers. I think just the data that they're getting is just, it's just so messy that it's hard to get really clean data. You know, because there was a, there was a number uh, that they put out, not last month, because last month was 60,000 jobs. The month before that was only 20,000. So, you know, there's this, there's this constant, um, um, no, you're, you're like battling a very cloudy measure and then you're, sub, you're subject to more revisions, which makes it really hard to kind of have a, you know, a, a consistent policy uh, that you can, that's reliable when it's just the, the, the job numbers are moving all over the place because of adjustments. But how could that Seems be, Roberto? Like, why, I mean, why are we dealing with this? Like, why, why isn't this corrected, right? Like, I mean, it just doesn't make sense for us to go off fictitious numbers, right? Like, uh, honestly, it seems I like I don't. It's just that's this is the this is the mess that we're kind of in. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of there's a lot of numbers that 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 are um, that are reliable, right? If you look at consumer spending, if you look at um, kind of if you if you parse out. Um, inflation and certain pockets of inflation, there are numbers that are that are reliable that will kind of give you an idea of, of the trajectory of the overall economy from a growth perspective, from an inflation perspective. It's just the employment backdrop. But you would the think at this macro level, right? Like, I mean, they would that they would have this figured out by now, right? I mean, obviously, you know what I mean? Somebody like yourself understands it. I mean, you're sharing this information with us to help us understand it. But I mean, you think somebody at the governmental level would be like, hey, oh, oh yeah. like, you know what I mean? Yeah, Look, yeah. We've got this wrong. Well, Roberto, if you were in charge, but, you're but to be fair, Yeah, but to be fair, Josh, like, yeah. And this maybe come back to an earlier point is that I think central banks are okay if the data supports that they should hold rates where they are. Because the danger that central banks are facing right now is not where they've taken rates. It's if they cut rates too early. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, so if yep. they cut rates too early, you're like, it's one thing to get in. By the way, we're not at target yet with inflation with central banks. The, the, the road is looking good, though. We're, we're, we're trending towards, towards target here. And if you look at the last three-month rolling, we're, we're kind of getting there, right? But you just need more durability in the data. It takes time, right? right? From once they takes, drop. The yeah, there's, there's a lot of base effects that have to roll off. But the danger, though, is it's one thing to get inflation to your target because this is the crux of all of this thing. If you cut rates too early, what happens if inflation reaccelerates? Sure. Yeah. Right. So it's yeah, it's better to err on the side of caution and actually almost over hurt the economy. Look through strong job data if it supports, you know, your your narrative of you know we got to be vigilant against inflation. Um, because the, Where's the, the, 2% the alternative is terrible. The alternative is, is a disaster. Okay, in the '70s, yeah. there was a wage price spiral that was created yeah. because there was mm -hmm. policy mismanagement, and you know, inflation expectations got what we call de-anchored. They like our the consumers back in the '70s completely got um, the, the their view versus consumption inflation completely broke down, yeah. uh, and we faced a similar thing in COVID. You know, we our relationship with inflation completely broke down when we came out of COVID. Normally. Okay, if you look in a normal inflationary environment, um, 
when prices go up as a consumer, if you're not over earning on wages, you got to spend less. Yep. Right. To reflect that you got to cut costs. You have to kind of buckle down. You have to make choices, but you know, that's a normal inflationary environment a normal relationship with inflation. When we came out of COVID, that relationship completely broke down because when we came out of COVID, we were deprived so much of consumption. When they finally opened the economy, we wanted to consume three times as much, yeah, no matter the cost. And right? a lot of people had savings, they, right? They gave us money to do it. Yeah. They yeah. gave us, they, we had maximum excess savings. Oh, you know what? You're a student. Don't bother paying your student loans. Spend that in the economy. Yeah. Right. So not only did you have the psychology, the appetite, you had the dry powder to actually overconsume. That's a breaking of inflation expectations with the consumer. And this is something that central banks are, are this is enemy number one, because the last time they saw this was the 70s. And that cost the economies 10 years of growth. Brutal, brutal, brutal. Yeah. So brutal, this is why brutal they, decade, you know, they, right? they, they will, you know, if 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 the numbers support a tighter policy that helps them stop us from moving into this higher inflationary regime, I don't think they'll really matter. See, it feels like in real estate right now, there's just a, a glut of buyers that are just on, on, on the sidelines sitting there and they're waiting for an interest rate yeah. downturn. Like the well, second growth, it yeah. feels like so, a jump. So this, this, I'll tie into real estate a little bit here into what I just said earlier, okay? So there's this, there's, there's this um, idea, like, okay, so let's talk about the end game. What's, what are central banks really trying to do, okay? Yes, they're talking about inflation. Yes, they're talking about employment. But at the end of the day, the real end game to all this is, as I said earlier, they're really worried we're about to move into this higher inflationary regime, like in the 70s. Hmm. And they're convicted that they need to break this. And the, the way to do this, and this is, this is the, the recipe and what they need to do is, number one, they need to soften labor markets. And what that means is you got to get the job openings down and you got to get the unemployment rate up. Okay, because once you get the job openings down, the unemployment rate up, you don't have so much of this wage pressure that they're really worried about. Okay, number two, you need to remove the ability for corporations to defend their margins and you need to lower confidence. So in Canada, consumer and corporate confidence is linked to the real estate market. In the U.S., it's linked to the stock market. Okay, so this formula that they're trying to produce is in order to solve a problem that they've realized that came out of COVID. Coming out of COVID, as I said earlier, you had consumer psychology around inflation completely broke down. Okay, so we, we didn't matter, we were consuming. Not only that, consumers were actually, um, or workers, what they realized was uh, wages were, <laughs> I'll try to yeah. describe this, word. wages were low, inflation was high. So basically your wage gains weren't keeping up with inflation and central banks are really, really worried we're entering this phase where there's going to be massive wage demand catch up. So, and that's what you're seeing today. All of these strikes you hear about, you know, auto yeah. worker strikes, you know, auto well, minimum wage just raised the minimum wage. Too, right? this, this is because there's this massive wage demand catch up because everyone's going to the grocery and saying, how can I live on these, on these, on these, on this bill? Right. Yeah. So you got that happening. And then you have companies. What central banks have noticed is that companies are revising their prices more frequently post COVID versus pre COVID because in a normal, again, in a normal inflationary regime, companies don't increase their prices so frequently because, you know, they're fighting for market share. They're sensitive mm -hmm. to price demand, but coming out of COVID, guess what? 
It didn't matter what things cost. We had the money in the app, but we bought it anyways. So corporations are more than happy to pass on 100 to 125% of the inflation on the consumer. Okay, so now why is that important? Is if you take these two things, if you get a whole bunch of the population basically demanding wages, and if you have companies all over earning and very, very profitable, every time there's a wage demand, if the companies are very profitable, they can give in to that. That's called a wage price spiral. And that's what they're trying to break. So if that's the case, in Canada, if the unemployment rate goes higher and you have companies that are basically um, having their ability to defend their margins removed, and that's creating an environment of lower confidence, the real estate market is going to go down. So we should go out and fire somebody. Yeah. So that was a dramatic pause for you guys. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's just normal, right? And it's just, yep. you know, we're, we're, again, as I said earlier, you do not build the amount of credit that we've taken out in our economy in Canada. That kind of leverage was based on rates equilibrium of zero. Right. And now you're raising it 500 basis points. Like I looked at the mortgage renewals that are coming due, right? So the 2018 mortgages, the five-year fix, they're going to be 200 basis points. Like they're coming due this year. They're 200 basis points higher than when they originally took them out. Next year, they're 300 basis points higher. The 2020 mortgages, five-year fix, are going to be 400 basis points higher in renewal. Now, you can't tell me that's not going to affect your consumption. 100%. This is not five years away, guys. This is two years away. Yeah. Every year that goes by, someone, a large getting portion worse. of the is getting squeezed, right? Worse, though. Worse. Progressively yeah. worse, right? Because so you, you've seen real estate three, prices four in about 2018. Yeah. Real estate prices have come down because rates have gone up. The yeah. next wave typically in a cycle is when real estate prices go down because of forced selling because people are losing their jobs. Hmm. That hasn't happened yet. So your buyers that are waiting on the sideline, they're waiting until they have no more job. Yeah. Then all of a sudden they're going to be renting again or they're staying with their parents. So Trevor, one thing to note though, with, with the interest rate piece, yes, they were paying significantly lower and now they're going to be 200, 300, 400 basis points higher. But we've always had, well, since 2016, we've had that stress test where we've been qualifying people five plus percent since 2016 on a on an insured basis 2018 on insured and conventional right so in theoretically it's been baked in but they've had the they never stress tested these levels rate. of rates though that's that's not in their models they never thought rates were going to get this like if you're stressed because well, like you know like it's you're stress it's, testing at nine percent now essentially right yeah 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 but who's paying an interest rate of nine percent nobody no, right. but you're not getting the mortgage bill. That's the problem. Test. Test. Yeah, but they're but paying that interest rate. Can't, you, there's, you're not getting approved for the mortgage. So, no, they're, they, yeah, they can't at, at you know, 9.7 if they're qualifying for a HELOC, right? 7.7, 7, they're qualifying at 9.7. They can't qualify for that, right? Whereas previously, when we were, no. I, I will agree that we, we weren't qualifying people at the current rates. Um, but we were qualifying people as high as five and a half percent previously, sure. right? Because they, again, they thought that rates wouldn't go higher. Than but Trev, that. that's 4% difference, right? Yeah. So well, no, 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 because just... they're, they're only paying a rate at the, the highest rate that I've done recently, besides in the A Private. world, yeah, yeah. Yep. is like seven and a quarter. But even, at seven, even at seven and a quarter, you got to qualify them at nine and a quarter. 
I agree, no. but the point I'm making is yeah. that person, when I qualified them at five and a quarter or five and a half percent previously, okay, now their new qualifier yeah. is seven but, and a quarter. But but understand That's also the problem is that banks are facing risk of loan losses. So you might get clients that come in and they could look all good on paper, yes. but their loan books are just shrinking because they don't want to take that risk, right? And that, Agreed. And, and OSFI has mandated. In the real estate market, right? And then, right. OSFI's mandated that, that exactly. build bank capital requirements now. You know, yes. We don't like how much amortizations are pushed out beyond 25 years. That's yeah. just more pressure. This is how... This is how the transmission mechanism of central banks work within the credit channels, right? This is exactly how they slow things down. Yep. Um, so it's, it's, you know, whether you look at, um, because this, that, that what we're talking about right now, that's called, um, maybe you've heard of this, this is uh, the senior loan officer survey. Okay. So basically the Fed, central banks, they take, uh, they do it in the ECB as well. They take, uh, in, in the U.S., the Fed takes polls of 80 banks, okay, in the U.S. And they say, okay, What's your, what's your openness to lending? What's your lending standards like? And then they ask, okay, well, what's, what's demand for credit been like? Because it's two things, right? It's your, your willingness to lend, but also who's demanding the credit. That's what leads to credit growth, right? Those, that combination is at levels that we haven't seen since usually crises, like 2002, 08, 2020. That combination of tight lending standards and the demand for credit is very, very tight. So, but housing demands is, at an all-time high, though, too, right? There is still demand for housing, but it's yeah, starting there's, to break. Yeah, there's near. demand for housing, yeah. but if you notice all the transaction on house, you guys know it's all new builds, right? In the U.S., like in the U.S., like yeah. new builds are dead right now. The market is not moving. You've seen numbers that are the worst they've seen in 27 years. Yeah. Of course, that makes sense. You have mortgages at close to eight percent in the U.S., right? So, yeah. who's going to break their there's two percent mortgage? Unless you're structurally unemployed and you have to move or you're moving because of a job. You know what moves around here, Roberto? It's bungalows because the empty nesters with no mortgages, they're downsizing. They don't want the yeah. stairs. They have no mortgage. So the mortgage yeah. interest rates don't affect yeah, them. I mean, they, they buy got, them. They, they go to sell. structural movement. Like every, you know, there's, that's just natural. Yeah. But I'd say that the mar like the big buyers, the waves that really, you know, you know, create growth in, in the sector, this is. You know, but a lot of the builders aren't building either because the margins aren't. No, there. they're holding off. They're Man. holding off. Yeah, and apparently there were a lot of them were offering teaser rates, right, to get people to buy. Oh, like you they can were, buy down rates on them and all that too, right? right? Like so, you know, tack up the price of the house, but I'll finance you and give you a better rate. But either way, there's a, there's a certain limit you can do that, right? Sure. Like there's just at some point you start to see the the economy slowing and you say, you know what, I don't want that exposure either. You know, because you don't want to get like it's either someone someone might get hung with that loan. It's either the bank or it's the builder. So it's like you know. Yep. So I guess I mean like the another thing that really shocked me was in the in the last week or so, and I'm sure. So first and foremost, I mean you 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 knowing this information and you're telling us this information. If one thing goes on, on, on you know a little bit off or whatever, obviously you've instructed your portfolio managers and your team to to hedge obviously because you have that ability to to, to hedge mm -hmm. but i mean a big thing that was really shocking to me was a couple of states a, a couple of governors of of some feds of of certain yeah, states speakers, yeah. new york state being one missouri being another i believe 
came out and publicly said, I think we're going to be holding the first week yeah. of November, which, yeah. so tell yeah. our listeners and our viewers about that. And that was kind of shocking for us to hear. I, I, I thought it was like, wow, you're, you're, you're yeah. speaking out. Yeah. Like in, in the, in the, uh, you know, in the U S there's a number of voting members at each meeting, right? I think there's like, I think, I think it's 19 voting members. Um, and what's interesting in the last three or four days, like four or even five of them. And, and some, some of them were actually some of the most, um, if you, we call them hawkish or some of the, when we mean hawkish, I mean, some of the governors that were the most, um, I guess, aggressive in terms of rate hikes, even they started kind of softening their language around what was necessary because what ended up happening over the last week or so is you started to see movements in the bond market that actually starting to weigh on all asset classes and would eventually weigh on the real economy. So, it's called like the, the the curve or the longer end bond yield started to move higher. And typically when you see that, that that's something that, um, you know, we call them, um, it, it's called term premium, but it's it means that you started pricing in or risk asset or market started to price in that the Fed was going to be higher for longer. And if the Fed is going to be higher for longer uh, in terms of long end rates, this is very difficult for the real economy to actually be able to, to withstand kind of like these, um, um, such a robust or optimistic outlook, because as you start as you start keeping rates higher on the long end, well, from a consumer perspective, obviously, uh, credit is more expensive for longer. That slows consumption. Um, for corporations, don't forget they need to in order to fuel capital expenditure, they have to issue bonds. Well, you know what? If they're going to be having rates higher for longer, then their cost of we call it cost of capital is going to be higher for longer, which eats into profitability. Um, and also, by the way, the byproduct of having higher for longer in terms of yields also tightens global growth because typically what ends up happening is that the U.S. dollar actually strengthens in value. Uh, and that basically is a headwind to the commodity cycle, uh, to global exports, et cetera. Um, and then just for stock prices, um, higher for longer is, is not a good thing because um, that actually makes stock prices usually should be adjusting lower if rates are higher on the long end. So you're getting, you know, that that all of that tightness that could be flowing both from the financial and real economy becomes uh, more concrete. The more you have central banks, and, and this is typical when central banks, um, like they'll never say we are paused. They never say that. But what you start to notice is that more and more the tone of the central banks as a collective group starts to change from being very rigid in terms of we need more hikes to saying, you know what? The balances of risks are not just on inflation. Now they're balances towards growth and financial stability as well as inflation. And then they start talking about how, you know what, some of the, like, as you just noted, some of the um, conditions are tightening. The bond market is doing that for us. That's a form of tightening without actually us having to raise rates. Um, and that's typically what you start to see around when they're about to pause or they've paused. And we actually think they have paused. We think they've paused rates. We think, uh, um, you know, actually the, the first cut in the U.S. is priced in for, let's say, late summer of next year. Um, so late summer of next year would take you into kind of like August, September, July, August, September, about that time. Um, and if that's the case, if they're going to be cutting rates in uh, July, August, September, the bond market and what we invest in actually rallies well in advance of the actual cut. So. Typically, what you start to see is when central banks start signaling that they're pausing, there's this period, this phase that happens up until what we call the first cut or calibration. 
that's where bond markets typically rally a lot, even in anticipate ahead of the actual cut itself. Um, and by the way, equities do okay as well. It's just, uh, you know, whether we're going into a soft or hard landing, you typically have a really big rally in bonds. So that's why we want to be exposed to that. Um, you, you, bonds are cheap. Uh, any way you slice it from a nominal perspective, from a real rate perspective, uh, if you look at asset classes, bonds versus equity, we'd argue that uh, bonds haven't been this cheap before the financial crisis. So. Well, and just to put into layman's term for well, just to put into layman's terms for everyone that's listening, basically, um, Roberto, and, and correct me if I'm wrong or I misspeak, but basically, as interest rates increase, bond prices decrease. Is an inverse exactly. relation. So yeah. what you're basically saying is on you know on on the 20 and the 30 year terms, which is we've we've seen some massive yield growth in in those. We have an inverted yield curve that's happening right now. Basically. I, uh, you know, why am I going to hold on to a 30 year bond giving me 2% when I can sell at a discount and get a 30 year bond or treasury bill or what have you at five, 6%. And that's what, that's, what's happening right now is people, the, the in, institutional investors are, are wanting more interest on their bonds of, of the amount essentially is what yeah, you're saying. I, and that's, I think it's also more so that, um, people have left what we call the longer part of the curve. So 10, 20, 30 year bonds, people have left that yep. because they're worried about a couple of things. Number one, that there's going to be a lot of um, bond supply coming uh, going forward because basically governments are running deficits now, lar large deficits, and they need to finance that, right? So you, you issue bonds to pay for, to pay the bills basically, right? Um, also, they're worried about foreign buyers not showing up as much as they used to. Um, basically, you had a lot of, you know, um, Japanese uh, insurance, life codes that would buy a lot of longer term bonds. Um, but if yields in Japan are going higher, then they're not necessarily going to buy as much in the US. So uh, there's that. And also, by the way, central banks, right? Central banks were some of the biggest buyers of bonds uh, in the last decades. They're no longer buying bonds, right? Um, so there's that fear uh, that actually made those 20 and 30 year bonds really cheapen up, which means their yields kind of went up. Yield curves were actually inverted, but they kind of, they call it re-steepened. But now at these levels, now it's actually really, really interesting because when we talk about uh, bond valuations, as I said earlier, we haven't seen bond valuations this cheap than since before the financial crisis. You're basically getting paid, um, you know, a guaranteed return above inflation of two and a half percent to grow your wealth. That's probably the best asset class in terms of valuation that we've seen across relative to equity or relative to other asset classes. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a number of things that make the bond market move. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, you, you have to understand um, that we probably are going to be going through the best years of fixed income now that central banks have raised rates 500 basis points. Because as you said, when yields go up, bond prices go down. But when yields go down, bond prices go up. Right. Mm -hmm. So now if we're at the peak where they've raised rates. Probably they might have overly raised rates, to be honest. They're, they're, they probably raised rates too much and the economy is already going to slow down whether they whether we like it or not. In that instance, they're going to be cutting rates. And if they cut rates, because long term, the Bank of Canada doesn't want rates at five. OK, they want it closer to two and a half. They just want to be sure before they move rates that inflation has been defeated and not going to reaccelerate. But if you know that over the next few years, they're going to be cutting rates from five down to two and a half, and you make money when they cut rates, 
that's why bonds are really attractive because you know they're going to be cutting rates over the next couple of years. It's just a matter of how fast they cut rates. But whether it's <coughs> slow or fast, if it's fast, then you make a lot of capital gains. And that's what you know your listeners should start to understand is bonds aren't just about the coupon. You could actually make capital gains in bonds. You can make returns like stock returns in bonds, really boring government bonds. Yep. You know, it's, people are shocked when they hear that, but it's true. When central banks are cutting rates because they reached the peak policy, that's when you actually get equity-like returns out of boring government bonds. And you know what? If it's takes a if it's slow, you're getting really good yields right now. You know, four and a half to five percent to sit and wait for the Fed to cut rates. Now, um, so I mean, I'm very conscious of your time and the amount of time that you've given us today. I'm very conscious of your schedule. So, uh, do you still have a couple more minutes to chat a little bit further? Yeah, sure. That that'd be great. Um, so. Uh, the CEO of Merit Asset Management, Roberto Kadakback, is on our show today, giving us some great advice, some great insight. This is amazing. Um, now we just like said, saying your last name. And I'm like, I'm nailing it every time. This is amazing. <laughs> um, so you mentioned the U.S., uh, your team, if you're, I mean, basically a lot can change between now and late summer. But based on the data that you're seeing, based on what have you, you basically have priced in a rate a rate cut in the U.S. about late summer of 2024. Yeah, yeah. We, we think they're going to. Um, so what are what is your team and your uh, thinking about a rate cut uh, and and also total rate cut in 2024 for Canada? So when yeah. I think I think Canada happen? can move a full quarter earlier. Uh, as I said earlier, the dynamics in terms of uh, growth. Uh, the dynamics in terms of our interest rate sensitivity is so much faster uh, than in the U.S. Um, and as I said earlier, similar to how Canada was the first before the U.S. to to hike, uh, they're probably going to be the first uh, ahead of the U.S. to even uh, to even cut, just given the dynamics that we spoke about. So we think that you know Canada uh, should be cutting uh, a quarter, maybe even two. That would take you to kind of like late Q1 or mid. Q1 you know, or, or middle of next year for Canada and then kind of like the U.S. in the back half. And, um, you know, typically what you see is they could probably start, you know, when, once they start cutting rates, it would be normal for them to start cutting, you know, maybe 25, 50 basis points in, in consecutive meetings. They'd probably take a pause and that's actually the fine line where you're going to start to see whether what we call a soft landing uh, is possible or more of a harder landing slash recession is actually what's well underway. Because if they start cutting rates, uh, by the way, the sooner they cut rates, the sooner you can escape what we call a hard landing. So not a, a, like a like a recession. So, but we think they're going to be a little bit too patient. Um, but once they start cutting rates, 25 and then 50 basis points, um, if the economic data continues to decelerate, uh, then then pretty much the hard landing slash recession for Canada is 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 already well underway, and there's probably nothing they can do to stop it. Uh, and then if that's the case, then they're going to start cutting more aggressively. So you can see another fifty basis points, seventy five basis points cut. You know, as the unemployment rate starts to to go higher, because it's that you know it's just that that loop starts to happen where finally you've broken consumer confidence, you've broken corporate confidence. Companies are no longer hoarding labor. They start firing. 
firing leads to breakdown of demand services. It leads to lower inflation. It leads to uh, finally a rebalancing of the of the labor market. Um, but even though they start cutting, they can't fix that trajectory fast enough. So um, I think anywhere from 50 to 100 basis points of cuts for Canada for next year. Uh, the sooner they started, the sooner it'll be closer to 50. The later they start the cuts, the, the more it's going to be closer to 100 basis points for the year. Hmm. Be more wow. aggressive on it okay. the later they go. Yeah. And yeah, are you calling a... Over, they've over-tightened, so they have to actually have to try to fix faster, Yeah. Um, you know, the damage that they've already... Again, I just want to remind listeners here, like we, we built an economy for a decade and a half on zero rates, okay? We mm -hmm. typically are not built to withstand um, 500, like that's abnormal guys. That's like central banks, central banks have raised rates 5% in the past, okay? It's happened before, but they did it over five years. It gave people time to adjust to a new dynamic. They did this in 18 months. It was historic what they've done. And now you're asking the consumers who are already, Canadian consumers who are already overly indebted to just all of a sudden sh shoulder that, um, it's it's a tough ask right so uh, that's why yeah it's, that's why it's like even if they even if they cut rates um sooner they they might have just already overdone it right? what are the odds we're going to end up in the us 2007 2008 situation great question actually uh, yeah i i don't i i don't think um it's a tough one because i just think Canadians are, even though our debt levels are high, very, very high, we're fiscally more responsible than the U.S. Uh, they, when they took that real estate kind of over leverage, they took it really, really far. For sure. Um, you know, we, we typically, okay, you know, yeah, some people have several properties, but I don't think they had five or six and they, you know, that some of the U.S. guys were doing or a lot of the U.S. cohort was doing. Um, I think our, our our banking sector is is much more stable than obviously than than the U.S. banking sector. Short um, amortizations for sure, right? Yeah, it's just so you know. I think um, I, I'm not. I I I also you also have to recognize that the the labor market is still you know as much as we say it has to weaken, it's still in a pretty decent spot, right? So I, I don't know. I don't know if we'll go to an 08 crisis. I think the biggest variable is commercial real estate. Hmm. Um, I think that's just, we, we obviously in Canada, there are certain banks more exposed to commercial real estate than others. They're already buffering for, for loan loss provisions, but um, you know, we, we've gone through issues in the nineties, early nineties with commercial real estate. It's not new. It's, it, it rears its ugly head every now and then. So I, I, I don't think it's going to be like an, an 08. I don't think we're calling for like a, like a financial crisis um, that was fueled by uh, over leverage and, and probably undercapitalized balance sheets from the financial sector, which we don't, we have the over leverage part of the consumer, but I think the, the capitalization is okay. I think the interesting part is going to be, it's the shortage of housing and it's, the real estate market's not busy, but every yeah. incentive is about to come from the government to start pushing housing yeah. again. And the builders yeah. don't want to build because the profits yeah, exactly. aren't there because they're not selling. Yeah. So what's going to happen is I think the first shoe dropped when they said they got rid of HST on the rental buildings. Mm -hmm. You'll see that coming soon, or at least the development charges taken off or something yeah. to incentivize the builders to come back. Cause they're just yeah. not, 
They're not building yeah. unless it's a custom build right now, right? There's the spec yeah, houses yeah. that were up before are no longer yeah. there. No, they want their margins. Yeah, they want their margins, right? Oh, damn right. Any business would want their margins and they're not going to bother being in it, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, so, with the rates the way they are in certain things, I mean, you could take that money and park it, park it, right? And yeah. make a better margin with your money parked, right? So which which the big thing I'm, I'm building, if the building's not happening, that's a lot of trades and a lot of jobs that are all of a sudden not working, right? And yeah. that, that sure. doesn't count against the job market because they're still self-employed, but yeah. those, those but builds are little mini economies. The go down, right? That's yeah. the whole point. Well, yeah, you the, see the, the vowel tipping now, right? Like it's. Well, yeah. like I, I get it. I get bombarded with emails of people looking for joint ventures and vendor takebacks and everything for land development. And before you couldn't find land anywhere. Mm-hmm. And now yeah. every incentive is there to buy if you want to, but rates mm-hmm. are high. So it's hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It'll be, it's going to be an interesting because Ontario's got to do some kind of incentive for the builders right now. They have no choice or they'll stop building. Yeah. And that's the only mandate that seems like they have right now is. More housing, more housing, more housing. So we'll see. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much, Roberto, for coming on the show. Um, go Leafs. Yes. You yes. were go Leafs. Uh, we 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 loved having you. Uh, this this was absolutely amazing and an eye fantastic. Um, and fantastic. it's great to hear that you know when we have such educated people on our podcast. And it seems though, you know, your Preet Banerjee is your doctor, you know, your doctor, James Thorns, you know, yourself, um, like all thinking the same and all basically going, ah, you know, there's some change, uh, you know, we're reading the tea leaves now, regardless mm-hmm. of what the media is saying, this is what, this is what the experts are saying. This is what mm-hmm. our teams are saying. Um, and we really appreciate your time because it's a very busy schedule. Um, so thank you. Yeah, um, thank you all. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, thanks the for take the Takeaway is really look at the bonds, right? The takeaway is look at your take bonds. Away. Yeah, uh, you, you have to understand. Yeah, I know some people are parked in high interest savings and GICs. It feels good to have that kind of a rate. But when central banks have reached their peak rates, bond portfolios always outperform uh, cash and GICs. Always, every cycle. And that, that's where we are, right? So start thinking about now if this bank account is going to start cutting rates next year, you got to start maybe, okay, we were in cash. It's time to kind of redeploy. We, we, we weathered the storm. Now let's go and make some money. Right on. Totally like making money. All right. Thanks well, thank you, sir. Roberto. Really appreciate Roberto. it. Amazing. Yeah, we'd, love we'd love to have you on again. We'd love to have you on again. Goalie after the cup win. <laughs> I'm gonna wear, I'm gonna wear my hat jersey next time I'm on the radio. Okay, no more. No more. No more. No more. No more. There's nice knowing you. I'm gonna have to wear yeah, yeah, my yeah. hat jersey next uh, next episode. Isn't that your Habs jersey, jersey on right now? It looks like a Habs jersey. If if we're waiting for the the Leafs to win, we're still not doing this podcast in 25 years. <laughs> Sorry, but like, wow, that, we have the greatest podcast baby. ever after a Stanley Cup victory because it would be just you. No, eating you would have to eat a real crow and wear a and toilet seat over your head. head. If the Habs win the cup before the Leafs, then you're gonna have to do something. Jeff. Oh, that ain't happening. <laughs> not with that first round pick. Oh, wow. <laughs> Uh, thanks. All right. Well, thank you very much. Sorry about your team affiliation, Roberto. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, We got. We've got. Give the wrap up to. Give the wrap up to Lindy for his hockey team. Let him. Let him 
beg for forgiveness. So, Lindy, you got two minutes. Uh, give our listeners, okay, something market-based, whatever. What are you seeing? I mean, I thought it was very interesting that Roberto is going variable. Well, I, the clients that, that are, are, are it's the clients that are in a variable right now are... I love the music. Like, hey, I've, I've weathered the storm so... Oh, God. Um, you know, like they, they've, they've weathered the storm 500 basis points already, so why not just toughen out a little while longer? Yeah. Right? So, so you're advising variable right now? You're advising variable? It's, it's hard to advise variable ex- unless they're a variable rate customer. Right? Yeah. If they're a variable rate customer, it's it's a lot easier to, you know, say, hey, you've already waited this long. Do you really want to lock in at such, you know, higher rates? And Roberto made a very valid point when you're looking at the difference between that three-year versus the five-year variable. Um, and those rates are so close. Makes a ton of sense. Now, rewind, you know, a couple of months. I can say, like, I got a, a three-year for a client at 5.2. Well, that's significantly lower than what a uh, what a variable rate would have been offered at that point. So, you know, the, the reality is the market right now has priced in further increases, right, because of the data that's been coming out. And we'll kind of hopefully start to see it soften soon. I don't know. Is that Ron That's Jeremy all I got to say. Good That's God. Trevor Lindy, basically, <laughs> right there. That's Trevor Lindy, basically. Uh, okay, Bondo, go. Um, what do you What do you have for any of our listeners or our viewers? Um, just we had an instance last week where we had somebody um, buying a house and they didn't have photo ID. Um, <laughs> you got to have photo ID. You have to have some measure of photo ID, passport. And we ended up by squeaking it through at the 24th hour uh, with Shot multiple, multiple uh, lawyer hours uh, and banking hours to push this through. Just get a piece so, of photo ID, right? So what did you do to correct that, to fix it at the end? There was uh, an undertaking that was signed that uh, the individual would have one supplied within a 20-day period. So like Ontario photo ID because if they can't get a license kind of thing? Yeah, even a passport. You can get an emergency passport, right? But I mean, it's with all due respect, just get it. If you're looking at buying a property, make sure you have one piece of photo identification, please. Okay, that's interesting. Collins, you got less than two minutes. Go. I love it. I've uh, done lots in two minutes. Um, What I would suggest right now Sometimes twice. Both kids, <laughs> both boys. Um, I've, uh, I'd suggest right now, because I'm talking to quite a few people and they're looking at lots to potentially build. I think it's a great time for lots. If you kind of predict out, I was watching some shows last night on, on building and custom building and all that. You're looking at really six months to a year before you're probably ready to dig and then six months to a year to dig. So potentially look at anywhere between one and two years. If you found a piece of land that you like to buy, I think right now land is not moving so quick. Um, but you have to look at when you're looking at land, people don't pay a lot of property tax on it. So if it's been in the family for a long time, there's no carrying costs. So they'll sit on their price. But I do believe you could get much longer closes. So if you are looking to build, 
I think it's a great time. You're at the bottom of the market. You can plan properly. I believe you could probably buy land right now, negotiate some off, but the bigger thing would be negotiating a longer close. So I'm talking six to eight month closes you could probably get right now with a firm deal. And the firm deal allows you to start planning properly. Now, if you want to plan, there's three places you need to call in Niagara. So if people want to do their own due diligence to see if they can build, because not many times, as we know, the realtor will list what the um, potential for build is or not. It's always do your own due diligence. There's three places you need to call. First and foremost would be the city to verify the zoning to see if building's possible. Secondly would be the NPCA to see if there's any restrictions on that. And third, to make sure would be the region. The region could have something in place where there's um, archaeological or, or um, forest protection um, and not necessarily would the MPCA have that because the MPCA, which is the, the Niagara Parks uh, Conservation Authority, will um, advise you to talk to the region too. So my advice right now, if you are looking to build and if people want to build, they want to build, they want to, and I think it's the best thing I've, I've just built. And I'm not saying that because I'm a builder because you get exactly what you want. I think you typically can build between 15 and 25% lower than market value. So in a way you're making that kind of money. But if you plan it right, right now, you could secure land, have a long close, design your house, close, start your build, take your time to build, and then you can sell the house that you currently live in just before you're ready for possession and potentially get a, 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 a gain on that house again in the house you're building and save quite a bit of money on carrying costs if it's if it's designed right. So if you have any questions, give me a call, but that'd be my advice right now. So a double dip. Potential double dip, potential yeah. triple dip because no carrying costs on the land either because a lot of people like to close real quick when they have land, they want the money right away. Go for a long close. You know, so I'll give you your money. I want an eight month close. I guarantee you probably get it on some indications right now. That's right. Well, um, we just had an entire, well, you know, we just had an entire episode of what I do for a living. So there's really no point in. Talk about the Leafs, bro. Yeah, two minutes. Well, well, Talk about that game. The hat the trick. The game was awful. The game, hat yeah, trick. Yeah. I the fell asleep and it was 5-3. I was like, that's it. They're it was, done. My daughter woke done. me up it when was, they were in overtime. <laughs> but that shows you the difference, awful. Curry. Every other Leafs rendition they brought would have lost that. So what did you want from game one? You wanted to show a little bit of piss and snot, which Bertuzzi dropped it and everyone jumped on that. You want to be able to come back in a game that didn't mean anything at all. I love that. Didn't mean anything. And then you wanted Matthews to to start off hot. He's got a hat trick. Perfect game one. And just a little stat. Against a bottom feeder. Fastest player in NHL history. Who? Score 300 goals. Austin Matthews, 482 games. And keep in mind, ladies and gentlemen, that we had a 56-game 2020 season because of COVID. So he actually was dealing with, um, you know, 26 less games than previous people that have hit that mark. Because if you got to look, you, you had Gretzky, you had Lemieux, you had all, all these people. So to, to do it in, in with definitely a season um, with 26 games left, it, it, that was a lot. Not to take a shot at our boy Matthews, there's a Twitter comment that looks like his hairline is coming back. So I, <laughs> I got to look for that next time I see him. <laughs> so I, really comment on that. I love it. I love All it. Right. Let's get that. Okay, Bondo. Help us help you stay informed.
Ciao. Oh, thanks, everybody. Hi, I'm Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jag and Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.